Hello and welcome to the seventh installment of Off the Page, the podcast from International Literature Festival Dublin. This week we're going all the way back to 2011 to hear John Ronson in conversation with Shane Hegarty. The discussion focuses on Ronson's book The Psychopath Test and the introduction here comes from Liam Brown. Um, it's a tremendous pleasure to welcome John Ronson to Dublin and to the festival to read from him to discuss his new book The Psychopath Test. He's going to be in conversation with um, Shane Hegarty. Shane is the arts editor of the Irish Times and our thanks to him for agreeing to chair this evening. So enjoy yourselves. Please welcome John Ronson and Shane Hegarty. Hello. Can you hear me okay? Can you hear me okay? No. <laughs> Slightly. Am I going to have to spend the whole time like that, like I've had a stroke? Don't make me do that. It's hurting already. What if I go like that? Is that all right? Okay. I hope you can... No. I was going to say no if I could hear you. Okay. I mean, I could hear you all the way up there. You're not even mic'd up. Yeah, exactly. That'd be fine. Uh, hello and welcome. Uh, I've, been, I've been lucky enough to interview John before after a showing of The Men Who uh, Stared Goats uh, a couple of years back. The film. Uh, the film. And uh, I can promise you uh, it'll be an entertaining evening. We'll, we'll get to, you know, we'll, we'll chat a little bit, but we'll get to, I, I, I would imagine there'll be a few questions uh, there, so we'll get to them. And John has, has, was saying earlier he'll talk about this book and other books and everything, but you were saying as well that you kind of get quite anxious about these things. I know that this book yeah. begins with your anxieties, but that you, yeah, you, this, yeah. whole, this whole thing and the kind of the, this uh, element of fame that, that's hit you in recent times is something which you find a, a little bit scary. Yeah, I'm suffering from a, from a massive surfeit of anxiety, um, right now in fact, <laughs> and constantly. Um, I was on The Daily Show last week. And um, uh, and it was just honestly back to, backstage. I was my uh, my tongue swelled up, uh, and my legs were buckling. And the people I was with were like going like you know like like after car crashes, people are going you know stay with us, John, stay with us. They were like that, uh, and they were like saying things like you know are you going, where are you going on holiday this year, John? And I was like going oh cool. Uh, and they said that's a nice jacket. Who, who made it? Uh, and then I was talking, and you know, in my, when I was like 14, and imagining my future life where I would be going on American chat shows, like when I was like in my bedroom in Cardiff, what I didn't factor into it was debilitating terror. Um, <laughs> but do, people, do people meet you now and kind of after a couple of minutes go, well, you're not like Ewan McGregor at all, or does that sort of thing happen to you? Actually, you know, when the Minister of Ghost movie came out, and like, there was like, I'd like go on, I'd like do kind of talks and stuff, and the interviewer would say, and you're being played by Ewan McGregor in the movie. And everyone in the audience would laugh. And I was like <laughs> thinking, not that fucking ugly. You know, it's, like, it's not that inappropriate. Because uh, when when it, it must be a strange thing, because you know you get these questions occasionally in, in newspaper interviews where they say, who would you like to play you in a film? Yeah. And you've had that thing of having somebody, very fa- a Jedi, play yeah. you in a film. <laughs> uh, I did think that he wasn't, I mean, he wasn't the most appropriate person, because he's not like... Nebuchadnezzar. But I mean, I was a bit, you know, I was a bit um, surprised that they were going to get somebody so, you know, so kind of fabulous. Uh, for, for, for filmic reasons, because obviously the point in the Men's State Goats was that there was a kind of, you know, the person representing me had to be sort of smaller and more pitiable than these big, you know, soldiers who thought that they could kill goats just by staring at them. And I was, I was a little worried that Ewan McGregor would be like, 
just as just as amazing as George Clooney. But I think but I think it worked. He sort of diminished himself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What a, a nice. He diminished himself to play you. Isn't yeah. that a, a, a <laughs> nice a nice honour? Uh, but I am I am an, I'm incredibly anxious. And that's where the book. I'm not sure how many people have had a chance yet to read the book because it's only just out. It is, we should say, at number 11 in the, in the New York Times hardback non-fiction list, which is remarkable. It's at, you were saying, number 9 in the e-book yeah, list. Yeah. So that's a 10 joint uh, a, sort of aggregate. Ten. Um, so uh, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's a, a really entertaining book, and, and as with so much that you have written, it has both that sort of lightness of, in terms of just fantastic humour to it, it's, it's satirical, but it also has this darkness to it. But it does start with, it starts with two books in a way. It starts with a book which is received by uh, some, uh, some other people, and then it starts, with, it, it also has this book in which you discover all the anxieties of which you suffer from. Yeah, there's a book, it's called the uh, DSM, uh, the, the um, Encyclopedia of Mental Disorders, which I happened to see at a friend's house. Has anyone read it? Uh, did, right. <coughs> you know, the first, the first edition of the DSM was uh, 65 pages long. Uh, this was like post-war. Uh, the fourth edition, which is the, the most recent edition, is 886 pages long <laughs> um, and lists 374 mental disorders. So obviously I was, you know, leafing through it wondering whether I had any mental disorders. How many did you count? Uh, uh, Twelve. I've got 12 <laughs> mental disorders. Um, I've got a uh, generalised anxiety disorder, which I have to say was a bit of a given. Uh, <laughs> I've got a nightmare disorder, which is categorised uh, by recurrent dreams in which you're either pursued or declared a failure. And all my dreams are basically somebody <laughs> chasing me down the street going, you're a failure! Um, and uh, I've got caffeine-induced disorder. Um, I found that a strange one. How can you... Surely you either drink caffeine or you don't drink caffeine. It can't be a disorder to be... Caffeine-induced yeah. disorder is something that everybody gets uh, if you know, they drink caffeine. I think you can reach a caffeine tipping, tipping point. Is there In <laughs> fact... Um, Are you, have you reached that tipping point today? Uh, yeah, uh, but not as bad as Robbie Williams. I, I, used, to, I used to know Robbie Williams because I did this thing with him and he drinks 40 cups of espresso a day. Um, and my friend... <laughs> Uh, my, my, my friend John Sargent said to him, um, so what happens uh, if you go through a day and you don't drink any coffee? And Robbie says, I don't know! <laughs> um, He's a remarkably good. We've, we had a conversation about this. We have a thing in the Irish Times where we've been playing Scrabble against a lot of the writers in the, in, in the festival. And uh, you were saying that Robbie Williams is a remarkably good Scrabble player. Yeah, yeah. He, he, uh, you know, but it's a trick, right? It's like if you, know, you memorise the two-letter words... You're a great Scrabble player. So, but he has, and he is. He, he had this great hat. He had a Bohemian Grove hat um, that he said, if you beat me at Scrabble, I'll give you this hat. Uh, so I played, and he thrashed me. <laughs> and I was expecting him to say, but of course, I'll give you the hat anyway. But he said, no, I'm not giving you the hat now. So I never got the hat. Um, so, so I've got malingering as well. That's mm. another mental disorder, which I think it's, it's kind of... Um, what does that mean? I, I just, you know, you know, you just... <laughs> you can't, you know, I, 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 it's actually, um, I think, unusual to have both generalised anxiety disorder and malingering. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I've got both. Um, so, <laughs> so uh, it, it, but it led you to obviously it, it, the one one word or the one condition that uh, a condition that's not in it is psychopathy. Yeah. yeah, no, psychopathy's not there because of backstage schisms. Uh, really, they they don't like Robert Hare, who pretty much um, after Chetley in, in the nineteen forties, uh, Robert Hare's like the kind of grandfather of psychopath research and 
and they think he's too pejorative. They think he turns psychopaths into you know, one-dimensional demon. So that's why psychopathy's not in there. I didn't know any of that at the time. Uh, what is in there is, uh, is antisocial personality disorder and narcissistic personality disorder. One of the reasons why I was looking through the book was because I, I had this kind of theory that, um, that madness is a more powerful engine when it comes to the way society works than, than rationality. So rationality is like a steel pond and madness is the jagged rock thrown in it, creating ripples everywhere. And that made me wonder whether there was a type of madness um, that was so powerful it could actually remould society. And psychologists say uh, psychopathy is that madness because um, the statistics are that 1% of the general population is a psychopath. So what, there's, what how many people are here? There's about 300 here tonight, okay, so there's so three psychopaths. Three psychopaths. In in, in you put your hands up yeah. if you're really, uh, <laughs> Okay, unless, um, unless psychopaths like to go to events about psychopaths, in which case there's maybe 15 or 20 psychopaths. Uh, and then 25% of the prison population is a psychopath, um, but they are responsible for 60% of unrest in prisons. Um, and then 4% of CEOs are psychopaths. Uh, so you're four times more likely to, find, to have one leading you than to have one as your subordinate. And there's a really interesting uh, description in the book about uh, they showed a particular, they showed a, a psychopath a picture of, of, of a woman pulling a facial expression. Yeah. And, a, and, and his response to it was... No, it's worse than that. You've got, you've got a sort of nice you know, misremembering of this situation. Go on. Actually, it was a photograph of somebody who'd been shot in the face. Um, <laughs> Was there not? Oh, look. Is there not a way you say, I don't know what the, the, uh, the mm. facial expression is, but. Oh, no, yeah, you're right. There is that's that all as right. well. I was getting slow. Yeah. <laughs> um, so shaken by the book, was yeah, I? Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, yeah, they showed somebody, um, they showed one particular psychopath a, a picture of a frightened face, and they asked him to identify the emotion. And he said, I don't know what the emotion is, uh, but it's the face people pull just before I kill them. And that's become, yeah. it's, it's sort of set to benchmark. Because this is the thing, yeah. it, we, we talk about it in, in a second. Actually, yeah. I should get, what was the other example then about shooting somebody in the face? Because there is that as well, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, the, the basically, yeah, way. that, that um, when, it's all, this is the thing. I mean, I'm saying all of this, you know, this, I'm kind of moving yeah, on a bit in the book, yeah. but, but basically this is what I was told, that it's all to do with the amygdala. It's also the relationship between the amygdala and the central nervous system. My amygdala, as an over-anxious uh, person, uh, shoots far too many signals of fear and distress and guilt and remorse, uh, which kind of makes us good people, uh, but also makes us like, you know, um, very anxious people uh, and, you know, unable to do many things. Um, whereas psychopaths, their amygdala doesn't shoot enough. They're under-anxious. So I'm the neurological opposite of a psychopath, uh, which basically means it's kind of a stupid idea to spend two years somebody who suffers from too much anxiety hanging out with psychopaths because, <laughs> you know, it's, it's not great. Um, and this is it, you, so... Uh, yeah, so basically, when they look at a frightened face, or, or when they look at a photograph of somebody who's been shot in the face, to us, our amygdala will, you know, be like one of those Hubble photographs of solar flares. Uh, but to them, it's like a Hubble photograph of a dead planet, you know, it's just um, nothing. And, and if anything, they, they are curious. It's, it's like a puzzle to be solved. And is that for you then, because 
is, is, is it because you're the, you're the polar opposite of those type of people, that, is that what attracted you to this whole subject in the first place? Yeah, well, that and the idea about whether or not madness was this guiding force in society, mm. whether psychopathy was that, it seemed like a huge thought. Uh, I remember like 10 years ago, I did this thing with David Icke, who believes that, uh, that the, the, the secret rulers of the world are blood drinking, child sacrificing, paedophile lizards who've adopted human form. And, and you had, the, you had this, this group of um, anti-racists who were convinced that when David Icke said child sacrificing, paedophile, blood drinking lizards, he was using code, and what he really meant was Jews. Uh, to which David Icke said, no, I really do mean lizards. Um, <laughs> To which they said, that's code too. Um, <laughs> so uh, uh, that was in my book then. Um, but yeah, and suddenly you had all these kind of eminent psychologists from Harvard and so on saying exactly the same thing. They were saying there's these kind of, there's a subhuman species of people who aren't like us. They're different. They don't possess the qualities that make people human, i.e. empathy. Uh, rule our world. So basically, I had all these kind of eminent psychologists saying exactly what David Icke was saying, but just using a different term. Uh, and I thought, you know, that's a huge thought. But and I wanted to know whether it was true. Yeah, but you also, you, you, the book has, and this is the, it's, it's called a psychopath test, because effectively there's a checklist in which people can take a test. I presume you spent the last few weeks with people saying, I've passed Dominic the psychopath test. Yeah. Or, oh, and yeah. also asking, who's a psychopath? Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. But there's a terrible, we'll get onto this <coughs> in a bit, yeah, there's a terrible kind of seductive danger. In, yeah. In, we described it as your superpower during the book, that you suddenly you can see psychopaths everywhere. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 um, I did the course, uh, I, and uh, I've identified A.A. Gill as a psychopath. And <laughs> um, A.A. Gill. Um, <laughs> He wrote an article about, uh, well, I, I diagnosed A.A. Gill as a psychopath for two reasons. Firstly, because he's always very rude about my documentaries. And secondly, because um, he wrote an article about killing a baboon on safari. And he said, you know, well, of course I would want to kill a baboon on safari because, you know, like all of us, I want to know what it's like to kill a person. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Would you like to know what it's like to kill A.A. Gill? Oh, that, would be, <laughs> that would be nice. Um, <laughs> but we're moving ahead. Can I say what happened after the DSM? Yes. Um, oh, yeah, of course. Yes, yeah. fine. And in fact, I could if you want. Uh, um, basically, I thought this is extraordinary that I've diagnosed myself with 12 mental disorders. And I wondered whether this meant that I was crazier than I thought I was, or whether it's not a good idea to self diagnose when you're not a trained professional. <laughs> um, or whether the psychiatry profession has this kind of strange fetish to diagnose normal behaviour as a mental disorder. It seemed, you know, it, it, was a, it, was a, you know, it was a mystery to me. Yeah. So I wanted to meet a critic of... This is how I really got into this book. I wanted to meet a critic of psychiatry to find out, you know, their view on this. So, that, so I ended up having lunch with the Scientologists. Mm. Um, um, a guy called Brian Daniels. It's, it's, it's funny, because people kind of laugh about the Scientologist thing, probably mm. understandably. Uh, and you said yourself you were a bit nervous about it when mm. you met the Scientologist because of everything that's happened. But there's a part in the book where somebody's sort of almost kind of looking for you to say that towards the end, and you're kind of, but actually, they've been quite nice to me. You know what? I mean, what, what can I say? You know, they were After I finished writing the book, actually, I had a couple of people criticise me for being too, too nice to Scientologists in the book. But it's like, you know, I said to them, can you prove to me that psychiatry is a pseudoscience? I said, go on, prove it to me. And they said, okay, um, you can meet Tony. 
And I said, who's Toadie? And they said, Toadie's in Broadmoor. Uh, he faked madness to get out of a prison sentence. Um, and now, and they sent him to Broadmoor, and now he's stuck. He's a sane man inside Broadmoor. And the more he tries to convince the psychiatrist that he's sane, uh, the more they take it as evidence that he's crazy. Uh, do you want us to get you into Broadmoor to meet Tony? So I kind of said, yes. <laughs> uh, and they did all of that for me, you know, and they, and they didn't ask for anything in return. They never asked to read what I'd written. And then after I'd finished the book, people were saying, well, why didn't you put in the fact that they all believe in Zeno and the volcanoes? And they do this and they do these terrible things. And, you know, they're responsible for kind of, you know, um, people dying and so on. It, it just seemed like gratuitous, you know? It just seemed like, you know, it seemed to me to be a gratuitous thing to do under those circumstances. Did you want to, I know you'd, you'd did you want to read a little bit from uh, the book uh, on Tony uh, mm. there, who, <coughs> as you said, is a man who's, who's ended up in there, and that's part of, obviously, the mystery of part of the book as to whether he really is... Whether he did fake madness or not. Yeah. Uh, basically, you know, he, uh, I went to Broadmoor, I went to the Wellness Centre, which is where, you know, you can meet inmates. Um, and they all came in, and they were all quite fat, wearing sweatpants and, you know, docile. And Brian, the Scientologist, whispered to me, they're medicated. It just made me realise, God, you know, the Scientologists really hate medication, because I'm obviously thinking that's probably a good, a good <laughs> idea. <laughs> and, um, and, then, um, and then Brian said, here's Tony. And Tony came in, and he wasn't medicated he was wearing a pinstripe suit uh, and he was like walking towards me like someone out of the apprentice with his arm outstretched <laughs> and it was evident that like this was the demeanor of a man who really wanted to prove that he was you know very sane uh, so he said yeah he'd beat, he'd beaten somebody up when he was 17 um, he said that the uh, he was wait he was on remand at Reading prison and his cellmate said to him you know, you're looking at five to seven years here. What you should do is fake madness. It'll be great. Just tell him you're mad. Uh, they'll send you to some cushy hospital. Nurses will bring you pizzas. You'll have a PlayStation. Uh, so we asked to see the prison psychiatrist, and he, and he was, like, channeling um, movies he'd seen about crazy people. So he'd seen David Cronenberg's Crash, in which people derive sexual pleasure from enacting car crashes. So he said to the prison psychiatrist... I get sexual pleasure from crashing cars into walls. Uh, and he said, I'd also, I, I, um, I like to see uh, women's faces as they die. And I said to Tony, where'd you get that one from? He said, oh, from a biography of Ted Bundy that they had in the prison library. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so evidently, he faked madness much too well. Uh, and they sent him to Broadmoor. <laughs> and he took one look at the place, which is the most depressing place. You can, I mean, it's all pine and peach and pink. It's like a sort of giant, heavily fortified uh, travelling. Uh, <laughs> and the, on the only flashes of colour are the, are the reds of the panic buttons. And the, <laughs> and the air conditioning is like a constant, long, sad sigh. The whole time <laughs> it's like... Ah. <laughs> <laughs> So Tony, like, immediately, you know, asked to see the psychiatrist and said, you know, it's been a terrible misunderstanding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not mad. Um, so if he... This was his story to me. If he hadn't faked madness, if he'd just gone to jail for GBH, he'd have done five to seven years. I said, how long have you been in Broadmoor for? He said, 12 years. 
So I'm going to read a tiny bit from the book about um, that. It's an awful lot harder, Tony told me, to convince people you're sane than it is to convince them you're crazy. I thought the best way to seem normal, he said, would be to talk to people normally about normal things like football and what's on TV. That's the obvious thing to do, right? I subscribe to New Scientist. I like reading about scientific breakthroughs. One time they had an article about how the US Army was training bumblebees to sniff out explosives. So I said to a nurse, did you know that the US Army is... Tra <laughs> Later, when I read my medical notes, I saw they'd written, thinks bees can sniff out explosives. When you decided to wear pinstripe to meet me, I said, did you realise the look could go either way? <laughs> yes, said Tony, but I thought I'd take my chances. Plus, most of the patients here are disgusting slobs who don't wash or change their clothes for weeks on end, and I like to dress well. Later on, by the way, he told me that, um, uh, that uh, he, he doesn't like to hang around with, with the serial killers, like the, like the Stockwell Strangler and so on, as he stays in his room a lot, and they take that as a sign of madness because it, it says that he's kind of grandiose and withdrawn and so on. You know, Broadmoor must be the only place where not wanting to hang around with paedophiles <laughs> and serial killers is a sign of madness. Um, <laughs> I looked around the wellness centre at the patients scoffing chocolate bars with their parents, who, in contrast to their children, had made a great effort to dress well. It was Sunday lunchtime and they looked like they were dressed for an old-fashioned Sunday lunch. The fathers were in suits, the mothers in neat dresses. One woman, sitting a few tables away from me, had both her sons in Broadmoor. I saw her lean over and stroke their faces, one after the other. I know people are looking out for non-verbal clues to my mental state, Tony continued. Psychiatrists love non-verbal clues. They love to analyse body movements, but that's really hard for the person who's trying to act sane. How do you sit in a sane way? How do you cross your legs in a sane way? And you know they're really paying attention, so you get self-conscious. You try to smile in a sane way, but it's just impossible. I suddenly felt quite self-conscious about my own posture. Was I sitting like a journalist, <laughs> crossing my legs like a journalist? Because <laughs> um, uh, you, you meet a couple of other people. You mentioned about the anxieties of hanging around with psychopaths, or yeah. potentially do you... It must have been something you worried about when you take on a book like this, that you may end up bringing... Because obviously you've... Yeah. In a psychopath's home. I remember I once invited, uh, I remember when I was less anxious, when I was much younger, I invited a member of the Manson family to come and visit us at our house. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I made my funniest ever joke. Uh, I said, um, she said to me, what's your postcode? She was travelling through London. And I, at the time I said it was N51JX. I said, that's hundred. J for John, X what you've got carved in your forehead. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, did you, did you ask her to carve the turkey or...? No, 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 she never came. I told my wife I'd invited a member of the Manson and she said, you are not having a member of the Manson family come to this house. You must um, have tried. I, mean, I think the New York Times quote on this is that uh, in a review of this book, they said that you have a supernatural ability to attract wingnuts of every stripe. But it's, it's never... Um, I mean, hopefully we'll get to some of the kind of moral nuances of this book in, in a bit because it's never in a kind of going... It's never in a... In, in an immoral way. Yeah. It's, it's always... I said in my first book, Them, that the idea is to go to their, to go to their world 
and stand with them as they glare back at us. It's always a way of trying to look at our world. You know, it's never a freak show. I mean, it's that, you know, there's people who are kind of, you know, I suppose, you know, who've been kind of inspired by me and, you know, I was inspired by Nick Broomfield and, and uh, 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 you know, Louis Theroux came along the same time as me. And then there's a generation of people who came along after us who sort of redefined it, mainly because it's, it's rewarding to do so in this kind of completely, you know, psychopathic uh, industry that journalism is, to basically just find crazy people to laugh but at. But, and that, that, and, that, that um, is part We don't do that. Yeah. But it's, and that's, that's a core part of, of, of the, the book, book, isn't it? That description of journalists and jur uh, uh, journalism, especially television journalism, looking for those people. And that, that, uh, them deciding what's mad mad enough for television and what's too mad. Too mad, exactly. I, I spoke to this researcher who does the kind of Jerry Springer type chat shows and she said she had this secret trick and what she'd do is she'd ask the prospective guests what medication they were on and if it was for, if it was like something scary like lithium for schizophrenia, she said I wouldn't have them on because you know you don't want them to you know, go off and then kill themselves. But if it's like something representing a kind of more fun mental disorder like Prozac, <laughs> you know that's that's good because that you know because the implication is that they'll you know go a bit crazy they'll they'll you know they'll they'll be emotional you know they'll be angry and that's what, and if they're on no medication at all the implication is that they're a bit too boring to be on television um, and just look at the apprentice i mean you know series one of the apprentice was uh you know i thought an interesting look at the personality types you know sort of young thrusting you know capitalists by the time it gets to series five it's just fragile narcissists hand-picked to fall apart for our entertainment <laughs> because we're worried that we're going mad and so we like to watch people on television who are a bit madder than we are and makes us feel a bit more normal. And it, and it, it leads <laughs> into that because it, Adam Curtis was the, the documentary maker, uh, people might know his work, um, he, he, he kind of dropped this bombshell in at, at, a, at a point when you yeah. were sort of fairly confident that of, of where you were going with this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, he's, well, but basically, maybe I should go back to Tony mm. just for a second, because um, what happened after I left Broadmoor that day was I, I wrote to his clinician and said, well, what's the story here? Did he fake madness? And his clinician wrote back to me and said, yes, we, we accept that he faked madness, because as soon as he got to Broadmoor, his delusions all just melted away. Um, but in fact, you know, since he got to Broadmoor, what we realise what he is is a psychopath. And faking your brain going wrong is exactly the kind of cunning and manipulative act of a psychopath. So faking your brain going wrong is evidence that your brain has gone wrong. Um, the, the pinstripe suit, he said, was classic psychopath um, because it speaks to like, item one and two on the checklist, which is grandiose sense of self-worth and glibness superficial charm. Uh, <laughs> Uh, not wanting to hang out with the serial killers and the paedophiles uh, was, um, uh, was another item on the checklist, because, again, that's grandiosity. Um, oh, I asked Tony whether he had remorse for his crime, and he said he did have remorse, but that speaks to lack of remorse, and it also speaks to conning, manipulative, and pathological lying, because psychopaths always pretend to have remorse when they don't. <laughs> <laughs> but it's quite a... It's quite, it's, is, it, is it how many? 30 questions on the... On the list? 20. 20. So uh, it, it gives a couple of other examples of things. Okay, well, that's a lot of them. Uh, need for stimulation, proneness to boredom, uh, which I have. Uh, early behavioural problems, um, the implication of which is if psychopathy tends to manifest itself around the age of 10. Uh, 
then the implication is that it's something that you're born with. Um, promiscuous sexual behaviour, juvenile delinquency, many short-term marital relationships, um, uh, criminal versatility. Uh, God, I feel like one of those people on the generation again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fridge. <laughs> um. And, uh, and what, so y y you, you wanted to know if this ma if madness was something which had caused these great ripples in society in which people... So what, what well, that's the thing. After, mm. after I became fascinated in the idea that everything that seemed sane about Tony mm. was evidence that he was insane in this new way as a psychopath. Uh, and then Robert Hare said to me, um, who, who invented the checklist... Uh, I went on a course, and he taught me how to become a psychopath spotter. Um, he taught me the nuances of the checklist, uh, and I became completely power-crazed. Um, and he said, but the big story isn't some guy at Broadmoor. Kind of dismissed him. Uh, it's corporate psychopathy. It's the idea that political and business leaders are psychopaths, and, and all the things that would make Tony, for instance, the sort of person who would just flip and beat a guy up in Reading Town Centre, uh, is exactly the same brain anomaly uh, that would lead other people to become vicious, ruthless, political and business and religious leaders. And that's why the world is the way it is. And, you, and he said, you really should try and interview some of those people. And you did. I mean, you met, yeah. you met a Haitian death squad leader, which, mm. again, for an anxious man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd Can met him... He lives in... He doesn't live with his mother, does he? Yeah, he li basically, he, w he was responsible for the most appalling crimes in Haiti, you know, rapes, murders, you know, head of a group called FRAP. Um, right wing, you know, he was all about... Um, he was all about terrorising left wing um, uh, supporters of democracy, of Aristide. Uh, and the whole time he was working for the CIA. So, when he fled to America... Um, they, they couldn't prosecute him, they couldn't send him back to Haiti because he said he'd spilled the beans about, you know, everything he'd been doing with the CIA. So they said, OK, well, you can, you can move in with your mother in Queens, uh, but you have to stay in Queens. You're never allowed into Manhattan. So Queens was to be his prison. Of course, he was constantly going into Manhattan. I, I met him. Um, I met him back then. When, this, is a long, this is like 15 years ago. And I tried to interview him. And midway through the interview, all he wanted to do was protest his innocence. By the way, is the sound okay? Can everyone hear me fine? Okay. All he wanted to do was protest his innocence the whole time. And at one point during the interview with him, he started crying. But it was pretend crying. <laughs> I, I, it was a man in a very elegant suit pretending to cry in front of me. Uh, and I've never had anything like that before. And, it, and it, I've got to say, it kind of creeped me out. And I decided not to do anything with him because I, I wanted there to be some connection between me and people I'm, I'm either filming or writing about, and there was none with him. The only really interesting thing about him was his hobby, which was he collected those little plastic figurines that come free with Burger King promotions. He had a whole room <laughs> full of them. Uh, it was like something out of a Paul Austin novel. Um, anyway, so 15 years later, after I did the hair, the hair course, he kept on popping back into my mind as, some, as a possibility. Um, so I looked him up, but he's now in prison in upstate New York for insurance fraud. Uh, I could read it. Yeah, if you were, you, you were going to read it. Yeah. yeah, will I? Do you want, okay. I've never read this bit out loud before, so... Don't go halfway through, go, oh, no. Yeah, good, I would do that. What I'll tend to do is, like, start reading full of energy and excitement and about halfway through lose confidence in the passage <laughs> and start to mumble. Um... 
Okay, so I approached him in his prison cell, and he said he remembered me, and yes, I was welcome to come and uh, visit him. Uh, I, I did say to him in the, in the email, actually, I was interested in finding out whether he was a psychopath. Um, uh, and, and he said, okay, that was fine. <laughs> he said he wasn't, but he'd be willing. It's nice to have a visitor. Uh, why didn't you come and see me last Tuesday, he asked me. The volcano erupted in Iceland and everything got put on hold, I said. Ah, he said, nodding. When I got your letter, I was so excited. Really, I said. All the inmates were saying, the guy who wrote the Men Who Stare at Goats book is coming to visit you. Wow, everyone's heard of that movie. Really, I said. Yeah, we have a movie night every Saturday night. Last Saturday was Avatar. That movie touched me. It touched me. The invasion of the small nation by the big nation. I found those blue people beautiful. I found a beauty in them. <laughs> Are you an emotional man, I asked. I am emotional, he nodded, which worried me because um, shallow affect, uh, an inability to feel a deep range of emotions, is one of the items on the checklist. And I'd driven eight hours. <laughs> Anyway, a couple of months ago, they chose the Men Who Stare at Goats movie. Most of the inmates didn't know what the hell was going on. They were saying, what's this? But I was saying, no, no, I've met the guy who wrote the book. You don't understand the guy's mind. <laughs> <laughs> and then you wrote to me and said you wanted to meet me again. Everyone was so jealous. <laughs> That's nice, I said. <laughs> when I heard you were coming last week, my hair was a real mess, but I wasn't scheduled to have my hair cut. So another inmate said, you take my slot. We switched slots at the barbershop, and someone else gave me a brand new green shirt to wear. Oh, God, I said. <laughs> he waved his hand to say, I know it's silly. The only little thing we have here is a visit, he said. It's the only little thing we have left. He fell silent. I once ate in the most beautiful restaurants in the world. Now I'm in a cell. I dress in green all the time. Who is the unfeeling one, I thought. I only came here to hone my psychopath spotting skills, and this guy borrowed a special shirt. <laughs> Some guys here won't accept visitors because of what we have to go through afterwards, said Toto. What do you have to go through afterwards, I asked. A strip search, he said. Oh, God, I said. <laughs> Let me just read a tiny bit more. I really want people to like me he said. So I learn how to please people. I never disagree with anyone. I make them feel good so they like me. And he kept on saying that to me for a couple of hours. I, I, I really want people to like me. He kept on saying, isn't that a weakness, I finally said. Your desperate desire to have people like you. Isn't that a weakness? Ah, no, Toto said. He animatedly waved his finger at me. It's not a weakness at all. Why, I asked. I'll tell you why, he said. If people like you, you can manipulate them to do whatever you want them to do. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Uh, if, if we move on a little bit, because it, you, we did talk about, we talked already about journalism and that, that the kind of realisation that, uh, yeah. that journalists look for extremes, but it also, for, for your, yeah. yourself, you kind of had this your own realisation that you yourself, as you were going through, and you talked to another character, Al. Yeah, well, that was the real turning point. That, yeah. that, uh, you know, I, what I really wanted to do was to find a CEO who had been accused of <coughs> psychopathy by... And I found this guy, Al Dunlap, who was the head of the Sunbeam Corporation in the 90s, who was, 
you know, known to be incredibly ruthless and manipulative. Uh, he would close down factories across the American South. He'd turn, you know, thriving towns into ghost towns. And every time he closed down a factory, the shareholders, you know, got rich. You know, the more ruthlessly he behaved, the higher the share price went. You know, he, he seemed to be a, 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 um, a, you know, a terrible indictment of, of the possibility that, that psychopathy, you know, was, was a... Was, worked in, in capitalism. Um, and uh, so I went to see him. Um, and uh, he lives in this kind of $15 million <coughs> mansion in Florida, which was filled with sculptures of predatory animals. Um, it was like, you know, and, and the hair checklist talks about, uh, it says specifically, they speak of predators and prey. They think the world is divided into predators and prey, and it would be foolish not to exploit the weaknesses in others. And he was saying, yeah, predators, predators, predators. I have a great respect for predators, you know, lions, tigers. So I went through the psychopath checklist with him, and he defined, he kind of redefined a huge number of them as kind of business positives. Um, <laughs> basically, you know, grandiose <coughs> sense of self-worth was, uh, you've got to believe in you. Uh, he kind of turned the psychopath checklist into who moved my cheese, you know? <laughs> uh, and, uh, by the way, when I asked him whether he had grandiose sense of self-worth, he was standing underneath a giant oil painting of himself. <laughs> um, <laughs> but something happened to me uh, during that, my day with Al Dunlap, which was basically there was a few key items on the checklist that he didn't fit into at all, like promiscuous sexual behaviour. Uh, he's been married to the same woman for 41 years and there's no evidence of affairs. Uh, early behavioural problems, he said that was nonsense because, you know, he got accepted into West Point and he came from a working-class family. Um, so, you know, I was thinking, well, I won't put that in the book. <laughs> and, then I, and then I thought, you know, what have I become? You know, I'm trying to wedge this man into, the, into a box, you know, a psychopath box. I was trying to define him by his maddest edges. And... Isn't that what journalists do? My friend Adam Curtis, who made... Um, I don't know if anyone saw or watched Over by Machines of Love and Grace this week. Yeah. Um, he made that. Uh, you know, when I got back, he said to me, you know, God, look at us. We're like medieval monks stitching together people's madnesses, you know. Uh, take a bit of madness here and a bit of madness there, and we ignore the, the ordinary bits, and we stitch it together. And that, and that leads to... to, to uh, yeah, this the, uh, very significant kind of uh, part of this uh, of this journey, in which you you, st you begin to look at how society generally does that now, and, mm. and especially I know it's very easy to go, oh, they do that in the states, but I mean especially in the states, and and that idea of everything now needs to be categorised. Yeah, well, the one that I hit upon, um, people were saying to me, um, you know, anti-psychiatrists were saying to me, you know, just look at Asperger's, just look at ADHD, and I, I didn't want to go there because I actually thought. You know, these were polemicists who wanted to deny that mental illness exists. And people like that drive me nuts. You know, I, you know people who say, oh, there's no such thing as anxiety disorders. It's just, you know, anxiety is just a normal response to an anxiety-inducing society. Which kind of sounds good, but it's bollocks. You know, anxiety <laughs> disorders do exist. Um, however, there are examples within that which I think are, are evidentially true and... and one very clear-cut one is, is uh, childhood bipolar disorder, where children as young as three in America are routinely getting labelled bipolar 
and given antipsychotic medication because they're having temper tantrums and sometimes kids die. And that's clearly yeah, a conspiracy between a zealous pharmaceutical companies and psychiatrists who have these checklists, kind of inspired by the hair checklist because he was an early checklist pioneer. Um, and then we're all getting defined, you know, by checklists. And do you, do you find, I mean, this is a, a, a constant, for me, it seems a constant theme in your work, that this idea, and I know this is less a conspiracy book, but it has elements of conspiracy in it, but that uh, you've, you've looked at cons conspiracy theorists and extremists, but often it is that more prosaic reality underneath it all that often is as disturbing mm. as, as the conspiracy theory, or at least yeah. has very disturbing elements to it. Yeah, I think so. I mean, that's <coughs> certainly the case in them. Uh, you know, uh, uh, and I think that's the case in this as well, yeah. I think this is the case about sort of everyday horror. I mean, do you, do you, find, do you find that you attract... Do you, do you attract conspiracists now? How do, how, do, how do they tend to see you? We were, we were talking earlier on, you were saying that actually you're always very careful. You, you, you yeah. want people... When you're writing about people, you're very careful about how you... Yeah, I don't want people to feel... You know, it's such an immoral industry I work in. It's such a voyeuristic industry. I, I, I'm very careful to be as moral as I possibly can be. You know, I don't want to be like a mugger. Um, and I get very upset, actually, if, if, if people I've written about feel exploited by me. And it happens once in a while. Mm. And, you know, it, it really upsets me, genuinely. What kind of, what, in, in what kind of responses have you had to, to in, previous In, in that way? Yeah. Well, I wrote this piece, actually, quite recently. I mean, it was very funny. But um, it was this piece about Insane Clown Posse, you know, the, 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 the Detroit rap band, uh, who, like, you know, all their lyrics are like, um, I'm, I'm hating sluts, shoot them in the head, uh, Step back and itch my nuts, unless, as you can tell, I'm a very good rapper. Unless, <laughs> unless I'm in the sack, because I fuck so hard it will break their back. Um, so, uh, uh, anyway, it turns out all that time, they were actually evangelical Christians uh, who were putting secret messages about God embedded in the lyrics. Uh, deeply embedded. Yeah, too. very, very deep. You know, to the extent that you, would, you could argue that 20 years of pretending to be unholy outdoes <laughs> the good. <laughs> anyway, then they brought out this song called Miracles. Do people know Miracles? Yeah, it's like... Um, um, it's, it's all the everyday miracles that kind of move them each day. Uh, hot lava, rain, um, uh, fog. I said to them, fog is like a low... <laughs> fog a kind of low threshold for miracles. And that's about... You know, I'm, I, I'm, I live in London, so, you know, maybe I'm blasé about fog. Uh, <laughs> Um, fucking rainbows after it rains. There's enough miracles here to blow your brains. And then my favourite line is, um, uh, fucking magnets, how do they work? <laughs> 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 and I don't want to talk to no scientist. Your motherfucker's lying and getting me pissed. Um, so anyway, I went to interview them, and they said, you know, don't you tell me that a, that a fucking elephant isn't a fucking miracle. Have you ever stood next to an elephant, my friend? An elephant is a fucking miracle. <laughs> it's been around for hundreds of years. Um, <laughs> anyway, so, you know, I couldn't resist, you know? So I just got... And, and it went kind of viral and became The Guardian's most linked article of all time, which I think's in some ways good, but in other ways kind of bad. And, and um, I, I think they were upset. And, you know, I, I felt bad that that I'd become, you know, really successful on the back of them being upset. Um, yeah. But, 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 base, but I do try and... 
we not do that as much as possible. I mean, a couple of other uh, examples. You did a, you did a really fine documentary on Ian Paisley. Uh, must, would it be 10 years ago now? Or 13 years ago. And you were saying he, he, he was... The, the, the phrase you used to me, which I found amazing, uh, it was e very ego-free. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, David Malone, the producer who lives in Dublin, some of you might know him, uh, agreed to, to show him the film before it aired um, without telling me. Um, and, uh, so I, and then when he told me, he said, do you want to come over for the screening? I said, not fucking chance. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't think of anything more nerve-wracking. Anyway, he turned up. And the film, you know, has some d dark stuff about it. But there's this point, there's this thing where he's, we're in separate, walk separate jeeps with walkie-talkies. And he's, like, making all these anti-Semitic remarks over the walkie-talkie to me. Like, you know, there's some Jew on the ground, so don't slide the car. You know, and then you go, ha, 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 over and out. <laughs> <laughs> and, um... Yeah, so we put it all in the film, and we showed him, you know, he showed him the film, and he, he just thought, great, didn't ask for any, you know, um, I kind of, yeah, I sort of admired that. Do you keep in contact with people after you've written about them or uh, filmed them? Yeah, sometimes. Um, I've become friends with some, with some people, but not necessarily the kind of ones that I'm most hmm. well-known for. Um, and do you, do you attract, because, I, you know, I presume that you go places, you must have people saying to you, I've got a great story. For you, I mean, do you attract a particular type of, of, yeah. of person and a particular type of story? Yeah, um, I mean, I get emails all the time, but I rarely, I rarely follow up the stories that come in emails. How do you know? How do you know what's because this? Yeah, I mean, well, that's the thing. How, how do you know in advance that it's going to be a good story? Hmm. You just have to sort of think. Okay, you sort of imagine um, a, f a future moment when you're in the middle of that story, and you kind of think, you know. It's just sort of intuitive. It's like, will if I go to Portugal, you know, to do this thing, will something good happen, whatever it is? Mm. And if you think, yeah, then you, then you go for it. Uh, you know, and it's always big, dark questions as well. It's kind of questions about, important questions about how the world works. But, you know, psychopath <coughs> test raises big questions, and so does them. And so does the man. The man is there goat, because it does have, I know the, the film... Uh, I'm sure people have read the book and seen the film, but they, they, they go in different directions. But actually, the core of it is quite the same, which is that you had, and there's a, there's a, there's a, there are elements of this in the psychopath test as well, where you have these really out there experimental ideas about the human brain and the human body yeah. and its potential. That have but the real world applications. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the metastatic goats, you know, it, was, it started off with this idea that there were like four, you know, they, they, they created like four uh, levels. And level one was, uh, this is like Project Jedi at Special Forces at Fort Bragg. Uh, level one was uh, observation. How many chairs are in the room? Uh, you don't need to look, you'll just know. Uh, level two is intuition. You're at a fork in the road, you go left, you go right, you go right. And I said, what's level three? So level three is invisibility. <laughs> I said, that's quite the leap from level two. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I said, actual invisibility. And I said, well, yeah, but after a while we downgraded it to just trying to find a way of not being seen. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, like, camouflage. And they went, no. <laughs> and then level four was trying to kill a goat just by staring at it. Um, uh, uh, and they said they did do that, you know, one time they were staring at a goat. They had 30 goats in a room, numbers on the goats. Uh, they were staring at goat number 16 and goat number 17 fell over. Uh, but they had a <laughs> real-world application because you... The, yeah, uh, yeah, the yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then that mutates over the years 
inter interrogation techniques that come alive in Guantanamo Bay and Abu Ghraib. Mm. So these kind of madcap ideas from the early 80s um, you know, spring to life at Waco, at Ruby Ridge, and then at Guantanamo and Abu Ghraib. They try, it's an opportunity to try out these exotic ideas. And do they include things like playing the Barney theme tune over and over again? Yeah, with a strobe light yeah. and, you know, it, it's, it's called the book. It's also the amygdala again, actually. The amygdala is in, this, on, in that book as well, because it's all to do with basically seizing hold of that moment when the amygdala goes into overdrive and just clutching hold of it and not letting go until the person divulges information. That's, that's, so it's all, the, the amygdala is a, is a big part of the way our world works. You know? Damn amygdala. Yeah, um, amygdala misuse. <laughs> <laughs> is there, maybe we'll, uh, we'll open, open it up, it up uh, yeah. if, uh, if there are any questions. I'm sure there must be some. See, there's one hand up down here. Mm -hmm. oh, no. read what you've talked about it before. Like, yeah. I know it's going back to like, kind of whole cults and the way that people work, but it's just really interesting to see on, on TV cults happening versus in, in, in cabins in, in Ohio. I just yeah. think it's a... Okay, I've got the second part of the question, which is obviously talk about deal or no deal, but the first part of the question sounded to me like, are lemons psychopaths? <laughs> <laughs> um, which, as well. what, was, what was the first part? No Ledmans is no. Oh, Ledmans no Ledmans is a psychopath. psychopath. <laughs> <laughs> um, he I, he d he let me into. His t I went into his trailer. He into his Winnebago, and Les Dennis had a smaller Winnebago next door, <laughs> and he said Les Dennis can have the big Winnebago when he gets the ratings that we get. <laughs> and then he said to me, "Go and have a look in my bedroom." <laughs> so look, look, just look around my bedroom. You look in the drawers. You know, just do it. So I did. I went into his bedroom, <laughs> and it was like nothing. And I, and I came out and I said, "Yeah, nothing." So exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, Is that number twenty-one in the psychopath <laughs> checklist? Twenty-one. Uh, Where's no wonderware? He, he, well, no. I mean, obviously, Noel's big thing is uh, Noel Evans' big thing is what was it called? The um, uh, I don't remember the name. Noel's of it. house party. No, or no, no. I'm thinking of his religious belief. Where about oh, what's it called? Cosmic ordering. <laughs> That's right. Uh, he, he he cosmically ordered um, a girlfriend by September of that year, uh, and she came. Uh, and I said, "Is she the one who sold her story to the news of the world?" <laughs> and he said. He said, um, yes. Uh, he said, so what I should have written down on the, on, on the cosmic holding sheet was a trustworthy girlfriend. <laughs> um, yeah, no, he gets, like, reports. Um, I mean, the thing, the Dylan O'Dea was, was about four years ago, so I don't remember that much about it. But the thing I do remember was how they deliberately kept the contestants um, sequestered in a hotel away from their family. Um, which is a cult technique. It's in Cults of Practical Guide. You know, it kind of makes people temporarily mad to make better television. And they all have their systems about, you know, number six and number 14 and, you know, number 19, and they'd all do that. And it was all kind of, you know, fermenting in, in the hotel. And it was all to do with, you know, creating intense television. Yeah. I wish I could remember more about my deal or no deal experience. If you remember anything, it kind of give me some leads. But <laughs> I remember it being a good story, but I don't... <laughs> yeah, I don't remember much about it. I remember I was very depressed, because uh, I was depressed because I was trying to write a book about the credit card industry, um, and for three months, and it just wasn't working, you know, mainly because this was before the crash, 
and I, I kind of knew something was up, and I, and I thought I should really show, and, I, and for three months, but, and the problem was that all the people involved, like the, these evil, evil people in charge of some prime market, were, were really boring. Um, and so I couldn't write about them, because as journalists, in fact, there's, I write this little, can I just read this paragraph in, in the book about that, that very subject, if I can find it very quickly. And then I saw another question up there. Um, here we go. If you have the ambition to become a villain, the first thing you should do is learn to be impenetrable. Don't act like Blofeld, monocled and ostentatious. We journalists love writing about eccentrics. We hate writing about impenetrable, boring people. It makes us look bad. <laughs> the duller the interviewee, the duller the prose. If you want to get away with wielding true malevolent power, be boring. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a question up there. Mental illness. Mm. Uh, sorry. So start again. You were saying in your conversation that you had no time for people who didn't believe in mental illness. So I'm just wondering how you define mental illness without feeding into the paranoia around it. Well, I, I, I mean, I do believe that there's lines in the sand. I mean, you know, when, when people's brains go wrong, they go wrong in uncannily similar ways. So OCD sufferers mm. across the world have the same rituals, and they're always irrational, and they're uncannily similar. You know, lights, germs you know, bad thoughts, it's, it's always, you know, intrusive thoughts, I mean, I could go on. Um, and it's the same with psychopathy. I mean, the checklist actually is correct. What, to, I say that with some caveats, uh, which I'll get into if people are interested, but, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, so for instance, what Toto said to me about if you can get people to like you, you can manipulate them to do whatever you want them to do. When I said to Al Dunlap, uh, when I was going through the checklist with him, and I said I got to the term manipulative, and he said, well, that's leadership. Manipulate people to, to, to get them to do what you want them to do. You know, and that's just one example, and I've, I've got countless examples of uncannily similar phraseology. Um, so, yeah, so I think, it's, it's, I think mental illness is tangible and, and real, um, which isn't to say it, it's not misused, and there isn't a, and there isn't a fetish, you know, for for um, diagnosing increasingly normal behaviour as mental disorders, as childhood bipolar disorder goes to show. But, you know, one mustn't throw the baby out with the bathwater, you know. That it's, it's, don't be a kind of 9-11 truther about mental illness, you know, it, it exists. Uh, there was a, a question here. Um, on the topic of um, if you can get people to like you, you can get them to do anything. Uh. Here's you, you have this charming, attractive, <laughs> nebbishy uh, personality. So is this what you use to get all these people to trust you? Because it, I uh, just, I'm really intrigued by uh -huh. how all these people, I mean, okay, for the first book, when nobody knew who you were, that's one thing. Mm. But now, when you have this global reputation, is that, is, is it your nebbishy thing that gets you uh, to get these people to trust you and to what extent does that enable you nearly to fulfill your own thesis so right. how do you keep to the truth in that well it's not the answer is it's not that um because <laughs> uh, uh, and, and the reason is is that if i'm not doing something for radio or tv uh and these days i hardly do anything for tv but if i'm not doing something which has some element of performance i actually don't perform at all uh, I'm quite, you know, I'm just bland, you know, and not, I'm not 
self-deprecating or nebulously when I'm, when I'm doing these stories. What, what, I, what, I, what I am, uh, and what I think does attract people, and always has done, is really, really passionate and really intrigued. It's like, I'll only do a story where I'm genuinely dying to find out what happens. And I think that engages with the interviewee, that they, 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 you know, I've done my research, you know, I know a lot about them, and I really genuinely want to know. Uh, and I think, you know, I think that makes people want to talk to me. But the George Clooney thing actually was a bit of a magical elixir for a while. I mean, the, um, uh, you know, people, that opened doors for me with interviewees. Um, how, did you, how did you drop it into the conversation? Oh, I'd say it in my introductory know? email. I mean, I, yeah. I was basically, you know, I've, let's see if I'm kind of off wrote. Uh, you know, dear, blah, blah, I'm a writer, sorry to bother you out of the blue, I hope this finds you well. I'm a writer and documentary maker. One of my non-fiction books, The Many State Goats, was recently turned into a film starring George Clooney. <laughs> <laughs> I've written that 400 times. <laughs> um, you say, you, there's a line in the book where you say, Sometimes people don't want to talk to you because they think you might make them look a little bit crazy. Yeah, but, you know, I really honestly think I don't do that. I mean, I think I have done it in the past when I was kind of young and ambitious and wanted to make my mark in the world. But, I, but nowadays I, I strive to do the opposite. You know, it's... it's yeah, genuinely, I, I really feel bad if, if I've made someone feel bad. It sometimes comes up as well. You mentioned the kind of the character traits, Nebishi, which is... Uh, uh, word I think Will Self used it in his review Guardian glowing Guardian review uh, which uh, appeared online today I'm sure you haven't read it and uh, they uh, but I phoned my wife and read out bits of it to her I was, well, uh, I was worried about Will Self because I, I heard a couple of weeks ago that Will Self was going to review the book and in my head was like you know trust my bloody luck you know people really like the book and I'm going to have some massive slag off from Will Self, and that's going to become the thing that people know. Mm. And I, I became convinced that Will Self was going to slag it off, so I was just thrilled and relieved that he, that he liked it. But do you find there's a... Because it's a question I've seen come up a couple of times in interviews with you, and I know it's something which they, that is thrown at other, uh, certainly documentary makers, and people like Michael Moore and Louis, uh, Louis Theroux, that this idea of this sort of fake naivety, and yeah. that you create a character in a way that, that draws people out... Do you, have you have you honed your, your kind of fake naivety, or is it Not all really. genuine? No, no, it's genuine. I mean, I, I'm sort of what I've noticed lately. I did this Radio Four series called John Ronson on, and when I listen back to those interviews, what I notice and I'm quite pleased about is the fact that I unashamedly ask any question I want. I don't care about <coughs> you know because I'm so, because again it's I'm sort of passionate and genuinely interested. I'll ask questions quite happily that get really to personal areas, mm. and. Because they're, they're set, because they're asked with a kind of warmth and a humanity, that no one minds. And, and I like that. Because um, I would imagine there's a, there's a pressure on you as a sort of t when you're doing television or radio to, to live up to that particular character. And, and, the, and the really interesting thing, not the, re the really interesting, one of the interesting things in the book is that you're on the front, in a way, in kind of caricature form. So clearly they're... Yep. Uh, the British one, not the American one. I'm right. glad it's not a photograph. <laughs> uh, um, it's not, yeah. definitely. Um, uh, but uh, out, out of interest, before we go to another question, who do you admire in terms of? I'm mean, guessing Adam Curtis is there, but what, what yeah. other? Although Adam, I mean, I, I, I've known Adam, and he's like a close friend. I've known him for like 20 years, but and I, and I admire his work very much indeed. But I think it's extremely different to mine. Mm. Uh, we, we write, we do things on similar subjects all the time, but there's a massive difference between us in, in that Adam's a polemicist, and I'm 
a kind of anti-polemicist. You know, I'm, I'm interested in grey areas, you know, and I'm interested in ambiguities. I'm interested in kind of, um, you know, trying to find some form of factual truth. Mm. And Adam, like all polemicists, is interested in grand ideas. And actually, factual truth doesn't really matter. Uh, I mean, for instance, anybody who saw or watched over by Machines of Loving Grace uh, will come away thinking that essentially Ayn Rand introduced Monica Lewinsky to Bill Clinton uh, and then flew Monica Lewinsky into the Twin Towers. Uh, that seems to be Adam's thesis. But, it kinda, but you suddenly realise, watching Adam's films, that actually it doesn't matter. I mean, in the past, he's made films that are very clearly factually true, but actually Adam's trying to do something artistic more than journalistic, which is great. So I'm not against it, but it's totally different. So, so as, as a kind of influence, he, he kind of isn't one for that reason. Uh, the people I... Um, well, there is in other ways, I should say. But no, the people I really kind of admire are Lynn Barber. She's pretty much my favourite writer. Um, she writes for the Sunday Times now, previously yeah, The Observer. Yeah, and she also wrote in Education, the, the, mm. uh, the uh, memoir that got turned into the movie. Um, uh, gosh, I mean, fiction writers, like I mean, I learnt sentence construction from people like Raymond Carver and Kurt Vonnegut. Uh, Jonathan Coe, I'm a huge fan of. Uh, what a carve-up is. Is, is, was probably the single biggest influence on me. Do you mind me asking, uh, are you haunted a little bit by the Louis Theroux thing? Uh, we used to be very, I mean, it was awful for a while, you know. I, 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 you know, we were very competitive with each other. Um, and I always feared that I was more competitive with him than he was with me, which made me feel really bad. Um, I remember I used to have this joke where, uh, you know, I, I was backstage at the Richard and Judy show one time, um, and, you know, they, they give the kind of dressing rooms to the celebrities like Natalie and Bruglia. And I was, I was in a room. <laughs> that's, that's, what a, what a, an odd reference. It's probably about ten years out yeah. of date. She happened to be the celebrity okay. who was there that, that night who had the dressing room. <laughs> and I was in the, the kind of pool area. And it was me, Lambert Opic, uh, a bulimic... Former Liberal Democrat. Yeah. Yes, and bulimic, she a boyfriend. Yeah, a bulimic who was staring at the biscuits uh, <laughs> and, and some conjoined twins. And I, I, and I remember looking at the conjoined twins and thinking to myself, that's my relationship with Louis Theroux. Uh, <laughs> in that for one of us to grow stronger, the other must die. Um, uh, but you know what? Something happened about five years ago where, where we both just grew up and stopped being kind of, you know, com competitive and slightly embittered by each other. And now he came to my house at Christmas. He came, I had a little Christmas party and he came. And he invited me to his birthday party last week, which unfortunately I couldn't go to because I was in America. But um, suddenly it's all gone. I saw him at Joe Cornish's party for Attack the Block, which, by the way, is if anyone's seen it, it's an amazingly good film. Uh, and it's all gone. It's all fine now. Right. All fine. Uh, there, there's a question over here. There's a hand up. Sorry, I'm, yeah, the gentleman here with the beard. Oh, sorry, the microphone's going over here oh, first. We'll come over there sorry. afterwards. Um, you mentioned that psychopaths tend to either be CEOs or in prison. Is there, does there tend to be any kind of incredibly dull psychopaths who don't necessarily rise to the top or <laughs> working in a bin job all their life and the behaviour doesn't manifest itself. That's nothing uh, wrong with it, well, bin jobs all their life. But yeah, well, one of the strangest moments in the book, actually, was I was meeting Robert Hare, the father of the checklist, you know, the kind of father of modern psychopathy research. I was meeting him at an, at an airport hotel at Heathrow, um, and I turned up early 
um, and I couldn't see him anywhere in the lobby. And, and like, it was like there was a massive queue for reception. I couldn't find the house phone to phone his room. But the concierge's desk was, was empty. So I thought, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll go to the concierge's desk and I'll dial zero, get through to the front desk um, and asked, jump the queue that way and asked to be put through to Bob Hare's room. So I picked up the concierge's phone and the concierge that moment came kind of marching towards me like that. So he put down my phone. And I was like going, and he grabbed the phone from me and slammed it down. And I, I kind of bristled a bit. And then I saw Bob Hare and I said, you know, I said, you'll never believe. At first, I was like all kind of like, oh, Bob, let's suave. So the concierge would see me being suave. Um, and, then, um, and then I said to Bob, you'll never believe what just happened. The concierge manhandled me. Grabbed the phone, slammed it down. It was really rude. And Bob said, well, he's one. <laughs> I said, a psychopath. And he went, yeah, yeah, a lot of them become uh, security guards. Um, <laughs> concierges, masters of their domain. And I sort of looked over at the concierge and he was helping somebody into the lift with their bags. And I'm going, are you sure? I say, you should put that in the book. And I said, I will. And, and in fact, that was a real turning point for me, actually. That's when I started to think that having the power of the checklist can kind of turn you into a psychopath. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, the answer, yes, is the answer. Sorry, the gentleman there. Uh, hiya, John. You were saying you were uh, quite an anxious person. Um, I was recently, well, not that recently, I was working for someone, and after a couple of weeks I realised this person is a psychopath, or at least this person is very, very mad. Yeah. And it um, wasn't the most enjoyable job I ever did, as you can imagine. But afterwards I felt extremely anxious. And uh, I'm wondering, have you ever worked for someone who, in retrospect, was a psychopath? And if so, what was it like? Well, um, there is somebody who I can't, Name. <laughs> uh, I mean, I've, I've made films in the past about psychopaths. I'd not realised they were psychopaths, and they were very manipulative and appalling and got inside my head. Um, there's, a, there's a very powerful person in the media who I really can't name, um, who's so difficult that one person working underneath him uh, committed suicide, and another one had a stroke. Um, and, you know, I'm convinced about this person. Uh, and I've, I've worked, I, I, I sort of worked with them, but not so much that they could get inside my head. But I think, you know, sometimes people have said to me, well, what do you do, you know, if you find yourself... I once said to one psychologist, Martha Stout, you know, if, you, if you're married to a psychopath, what should you do? I kind of I said as a joke, what, leave? And she said, yeah, leave. Leave. <laughs> uh, she said, you can't hurt their feelings because there's no feelings to hurt. Mm. Um, but you were saying, even though, even though you stopped becoming a kind of a full-time psychopath spotter, you do still have those moments where you... Yeah, I interviewed somebody quite recently um, who I, I just happened to ask him what he was like at, as a child at school. I said, were you, you know, were you a bully? Oh, yeah. He said, I was a terrible bully. I'd jump up behind, the, behind a tree. I'd have, like, a brick in my bag. And I'd whack the boy over the head, you know, with the brick. And hurt him quite seriously. Uh, and I said, how did that feel? Because suddenly I switched into, like, you know, hair checklist mode. And a really good question is, how did that feel? And he said, it felt good. I enjoyed that feeling of control. And enjoying that feeling of control, again, is a phrase, you know, bizarrely, which is used over and over again. 
Uh, and I said, how do you feel about it looking back on it now? He said, yeah, good, good. I still enjoy that feeling of power. Um, so I said, are you the sort of person who doesn't really feel empathy? Do you see it as a weakness? I got that from my Toto thing. Because yeah. weakness was the word that had unlocked him like a genius. Uh, and he said, yeah, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not the sort of person who feels empathy. No. Uh, he said, the only time I ever get upset is when one of my dogs dies. Uh, humans, Psychopaths prefer dogs to cats. That would be true, really, honestly. That, that comes out <laughs> time and time and again because dogs offer unconditional love and that's what they're after. There is, there, there is one thing missing from the end of the book, which is the, uh, just a, the following people are psychopaths. Right. Which you could... Uh, because you, you, are there... I mean, do you watch... Do you, you don't go into names, clearly, in the thing, but no, are there politicians that you look at and Oh, you yeah, say, God. I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, as a, as a kind of amateur... You know, as a kind of amateur psychopath spot, I mean, you know, Dominic Strauss-Kahn, I'm thinking, you know, it ticks... If it's true, ticks a huge number of boxes from grandiose sense of self-worth right through to poor behavioural controls and basically sexual behaviour. Um, <laughs> Allegedly. Ele- yeah, but of course. But, you know, you see what happens. Yeah. It's an unlikable, seductive, dangerous thing, dangerous game to play. Um, it turns you psychopathic. You know, there's a line towards the end of the book where I say that, you know, um, people in the middle shouldn't necessarily be defined by their maddest edges. And so, even though it's very seductive, you know, I, I just don't want to go there. I think it dehumanises you as a, as a person. Uh, there was a question down here. Hiya. Um, about the, uh, the whole empathy thing, which is probably one of the best-known sides of, of the whole psychopath uh, condition, uh-huh. um, we've, we've kind of established that you're not a psychopath. Uh-huh. <laughs> or so you say. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, were you ever really, did you ever feel sorry for any of the, the people that you met who were psychopaths? In, not necessarily their, I don't know, being in prison or their yeah. conditions, but their actual being a psychopath. Well, you know, I had this kind of quite shocking moment in the book, actually, where I say to somebody, you know, don't you, sh- shouldn't we feel sorry for them? You know, if it's a brain anomaly, um, if they can't help it, if it's the way that they're born, shouldn't you feel sorry for them? And this psychologist said to me very sharply, well, why should we feel sorry for them? They don't give a fuck about us. <laughs> it's, 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 am- it's amazing to me that people would use, you know, these words, you know, these terms. It's, it's so the opposite. You know, when I go down an escalator and I see the people on the other escalator going up, I assume that they're all, we're all the same. We're, you know, we're all basically the same. You know, that's the liberal belief, which I am. Uh, we're all basically the same, we're all basically good. Um, but, you know, what these people say is that not all of us are the same. Some people are very significantly different. Uh, there's a question here. Now, in your experience, do you find psychopaths to be more satisfied with their lives and happier than ordinary people? Yes. Oh, 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 uh, <laughs> yeah. Did I miss what normal people have? No, absolutely not. Once in a while you hear stories about the kind of loneliness of the psychopath, um, but I think it's basically rare because actually, you know, we who have empathy know that it's good. But if you don't have empathy, A, it's impossible to then empathise with people who have empathy. uh, So you can't imagine what it's like. Uh, And B, you know, Christ, you know, I mean, did did I mention the story about taking the dogs for a walk on Hampstead Heath the other day? Yeah, no, I let them off. And uh, the entire walk, I was, like, crippled with, with fear that they were going to run away. You know, it was a completely... Exactly the kind of thing that OCD sufferers have, you know, this idea that a completely irrational anxiety 
you know, I didn't enjoy the walk at all. Um, I, I was in kind of paroxysms of terror. And I did think to myself, you know, I was nuts, you know, because dogs don't run away, you know, they're pack animals. Um, you know, but I did, and of course, then I was thinking, I wish I was more psychopathic. You know, I was, <laughs> you know. I think, it, do, am I right in saying at a point in the book you're going to describe this sort of slightly, the idea that it might actually be evolution, evil, uh, a step, you know, that, that actually by removing a lot of these, yeah. these traits that, that cripple some people, that actually in some way it could be seen as Darwinian. Well, society <laughs> certainly seems to be turning more akin to psychopathy. You know, one big thing about, you know, corporate psychopathy, it's always about the short-term kill. You know, psychopaths. Al Dunlap. Al Dunlap, um, before, one time, he went to a plant in Mobile, Alabama, uh, and he said to some guy, how long have you been working here? And the guy said, uh, 30 years. And Al Dunlap said, what, what do you want to work in a place for 30 years for? And then he closed the plant down and fired everyone. It's like kind of, you know, like Ray Fiennes in Schindler's List. Um, there was another line, isn't it? We said somebody came in and said, I've just bought a sports car. Yeah, I just bought a sports car. And he said, you may have a sports car, but I'll tell you what you don't have. A job. Um, and, um, you know, and, and, you know, uh, society seems to be increasingly short term, right? It, you know, the, 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 the days of working in the same place for an entire career uh, are diminishing, and now it's all about the short term kill. I mean, that's what banking, you know, very much was about, and so on. So you could argue that capitalism is becoming more and more a physical manifestation of psychopathy. I think there's, a, I think there's, a, you know, there's something compelling about that argument. Uh, there was a gentleman up at the, the top there. Oh, sorry, lady. Sorry. A gentleman, but sorry, I Sorry, I can't, I, have, I should take, I've got a <laughs> light in my eyes. I can't see yeah. Okay. No, a couple of things. Um, I'm interested in to what extent you believe that psychopathology is a product of uh, conditioning or whether it is a product of our genetic you know, makeup. If it's, a genetic, if it's a genetic fault, I would imagine that genes could be discovered which actually, you know, lead to psychopathology and there's some treatment could come from that. Um, I don't quite understand why the DSM, which is considering everything else in the world, doesn't consider psychopathology, yeah. which seems so incredibly prevalent and so dangerous to yeah. the rest of us. And, and I can answer that. Well, I'm, I'm more to my question. Can I just give the rec second part? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, the, the second part is something that hasn't been discussed here at all that I've developed an interest in, have been researching on the Internet, of course, is uh, victims of psychopathologists, women, for example, <laughs> who get involved with narcissists or psychopathologists, and uh, a woman whose name I can't forget has done, can't remember, can't forget, can't remember, has done a study of such women. And she's found that they aren't abused in childhood. They aren't like traditional victims. They tend to be people who are very outgoing, who like adventure, who are highly independent, who are incredibly empathetic, and uh, who are very mature. Yeah. And oh. everything about them is very, very good, except it's to a great extreme. And one of the other extremes is they, because they are good and expect other people to be good, they aren't very careful about avoiding people who might harm them. So there's a kind of a, of a mirror opposite to the psychopath, which attracts the psychopath, which is yeah. another part of the problem. But the last thing I want to say uh -huh. is I believe that society is evolving toward greater empathy. And that is something that is going to actually change the rest of us. I understand torturers, even if they have no empathy, have physiological reactions in their body. Which, are, which reflect the fact that they're damaging themselves by torturing others. So you might comment on some of these things. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> well, <listen. laughs> well, I mean, okay, first, the, 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 
people who marry the victims of psychopaths in a, in a, in a uh, emotional relationship. Yeah, I mean, and we all do, right? You know, in business, you know, we, as a society, we reward psychopaths because we're kind of, you know, we find them charismatic, we find them charming, because they are charming, actually, and they are charismatic. They're quite often good-looking for some strange reason. Um, they're ruthless, so that, you know, that, we kind of think that's kind of cool. Um, so, yeah, no, no wonder. I mean, I know at least, I can think of two or three women I know who ended up in relationships with psychopaths, and, and all of them were exactly as you described, and just lovely people, and it's because, you know, we're, we're taken in by charismatic psychopaths. I, I do theorise, actually, in the book that um, charisma exists in absence. We're basically intrigued by people who seem to be missing something, uh, and psychopaths literally are missing something. They're, they're missing a deep range of emotions and they're missing empathy. Um, so that, I think that answers that question. It doesn't surprise me at all that nice women end up with psychopaths because I think nice businesses end up with a psychopathic boss. I think it happens all the time. Um, okay, why psychopathy isn't in the DSM? It was all to do with backstage schisms, basically. A lot of people didn't like hair. Hair's not a popular figure in some, in some areas of psychiatry. Be one of the reasons being is that they think he's very pejorative. You know, he, he talks of psychopaths as being like a different species, um, and that, you know, is unpopular. So in, in the DSM, psychopathy's kind of split, actually, at the moment, between antisocial and narcissistic personality disorder. Um, but in DSM-5, which is coming out in two years, they might put it together, but not call it psychopathy and not call it sociopathy, but call it something new. Possibly even hair syndrome. He was thrilled when I told him that, actually. Um, oh, and the first question about the genetic factor. Well, you know, neuro neurologists tend to believe that psychopaths are born that way. Uh, and early behavioural problems is, a, is evidence of that. You know, that it kind of always starts in early childhood. OK, maybe we'll have one last question here. And psychopaths. I'm wondering how you tell a psychopath from just a common or garden narcissist. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I think psychopathy is basically all to do with, with, with a clinical absence of empathy. And something that comes from that quite often is narcissism. Um, and also, you know, in, in, the, in the dead, you know, lunar landscape where, where the empathy should be, what grows instead is this sort of twisted forest of the power to manipulate, a lack of remorse, a lack of guilt. Uh, and narcissism is one of those things, grandiosity and superficial charm, um, but it isn't the root cause. You know, narcissists don't necessarily do bad things. So basically, narcissism is a, is a factor of psychopathy, but psychopathy isn't a factor of narcissism. Uh, so be, before we finish up, uh, I mean, as such, we could, we could have talked about so many different things you've you worked on. Is there anything in particular that you'd love people to see I mean, or, or read? Is there one particular thing you've worked on that you just feel, this is the, you know, if I, if I ever do anything as good as this again, I'll be happy? Well, you know what? After I wrote them ten years ago, I thought, I'm never, ever going to do anything as good again, and I got quite miserable. And, and, you know, the first time I've ever thought that again, actually, is with the psychopath test. Um, I think I've sort of hit on something. I think the, you know, the kind of relationship between over-anxious me and my under-anxious subjects is, just really works as yeah. a book. So for me, the, you know, 
if I oh and uh, can I just say one other thing because um, uh, I'm, I'm working on a film at the moment with um, uh, Lenny Abramson the Dublin director who I think might be here somewhere uh, and I'm extremely proud of the script that we're writing for that it's so called Frank isn't it it's called Frank yeah um, a movie movie film and it's, it's, it's time it's about screenplay. somebody in a band it's about being in a band um, you were actually in a band yeah, well, yeah yeah I was in the Frank Sidebottom no blimey big band uh, <laughs> keyboards keyboards yeah uh, and um, uh, I'm really proud of that, actually. I think that's what stage is that at? It's kind of we're getting we're edge, edging closer. Is it going to be made in Ireland? Uh, I don't know. I, I, Lenny's probably. If I could read Lenny's mind, he's probably thinking, "I wish you hadn't brought this up." <laughs> Are you thinking that, Lenny? What? Hey. Okay, that's good. <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, I'm just I'm just writing it. Um, but Lenny made uh, uh, two beautiful films, which I'm sure some of you have seen, um, Adam and Paul and Garage with Pat Short. Um, and I just think, uh, you know, it's a beautiful script that we're writing. I'm really proud of that. Basically, the three things I've done that I'm most proud of are them, The Psychopath Test, and the script I'm writing with Lenny. And John Ronson, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you.